work, throw, worship. Your hands made me inform me. You gave me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous and that the faithfulness you have afflicted me and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wrong, wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees that I may not be put to shame. Hey, good stuff. Very good. Um, let's see here. We got to go to uh, today is, I don't know. Uh, today is, um, ah, okay, here we go. They're getting ready to travel in a little while. So, Oh, look, they got them on the TV back there, too. This is Sergio over in Israel. They're traveling back to the U.S. in a couple hours. And how are you doing there? Uh, good. We're just about to leave in an hour. I, uh, let's I, the airport. I figured that. So what we were going to do is just have a quick prayer with you so that uh, you have safe travels. Uh, thank you so much. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence. And uh, we got some prayer requests coming up in a minute, which we'll uh, pray about them right now in advance. And we also have... Uh, Prayer request for Sergio for safe travels. And uh, Rhoda, we just pray that they'll have a good, safe trip and get back to uh, the States without any hitch or any uh, problems. And we thank you for your word. We ask that you uh, bless this time together in your word. And we certainly thank you for all the goodness that you display in our lives each and every day. How wonderful you are to us. And we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank okay, you so guys. All right. Well, we'll see you soon, and uh, uh, just travel safely. Don't eat too much on the flight, okay? Are they in the airplane? No, they're they're still in Nazareth for another minute. So, yeah. Okay. We'll see you guys later. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. Good. Well, they'll be safe, hopefully, on the trip back, and then we have. Um, let's see. We'll go ahead and go to uh, uh, this year in Christian history. Can somebody tell me what today is? I think it's the 8th. Is that right? Okay, the 8th of June. So we'll read that right now. And let's see here. 8th June is... Uh, okay, he successfully invented a new religion. All right. Um, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, the world's youngest major religion, was born in Mecca between 570 and 580. His father died before he was born and his mother when he was six. He was subsequently raised in relative poverty by his first grandfather and then by an uncle. At the age of 25, Muhammad entered the service of a wealthy widow 15 years his senior named Khadija. His marriage to her shortly thereafter provided him with instant wealth. Her affluence provided him with the luxury to indulge a life of religious contemplation. When he was about 40, Muhammad claimed that he received a prophetic call from Allah through the angel Gabriel. He began preaching monotheism, a final judgment, alms, prayer, and surrender to the will of Allah. In the course of three, it sounds like there's no free will there. In the course of three years, he attracted only 12 converts. Because he was persecuted in his hometown of Mecca, he fled to the city of Medina in 622. 
His flight to Medina is called the Hegira and is traditionally dated to July 15, 16, or 622, which marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar. During his time in Medina, Muhammad's revelations became more legalistic and secular. Islam, as his new religion was called, became both a community and a state, with Muhammad being both its ruler and lawgiver. Once his power was centralized in Medina, Muhammad was able to return to Mecca and conquer it in 630. By the time he died on June 8, 632, almost all of Arabia had embraced Islam. And in the hundred years following his death, Islam spread like wildfire. The successors of Muhammad encouraged jihad, or holy war, against non-Muslims, and within a century built an empire stretching from northern Spain all the way across North Africa to India. <clears throat> Many of the areas conquered, such as Iraq, Syria, Palestine, and North Africa, were formerly Christian strongholds, where believers faced the choice of converting is to Islam or dying by the sword. Even Western Europe was threatened by the advance of Islam until Charles Martel of France finally halted expansion when he defeated the Muslims at the Battle of Tours, France, in 732, exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad. Islam has continued to expand today so that more than one-fifth of the world's population is Muslim. In 1900, only 12% of the world embraced Islam. By 2000, the percentage had grown to 21%. Today, Islam is the fastest growing major religion, in part due to a higher birth rate, numbering 1.3 billion in the year 2000. Most live in a belt stretching from West Africa to Southeast Asia. Islam is the majority religion in 42 countries and territories. Most of these countries prohibit Christian evangelism and exclude Christian missionaries. In spite of the fact that followers of Muhammad have greatly increased their numbers and their political power, it is encouraging that more Muslims came to Christ between 1980 and 2000 than any earlier period of history. They asked, do you know any Muslims? Today in America, there are more Muslims than Episcopalians. Think of how you, well, that's not saying much. Think of how you can prepare yourself to share the gospel with them. It is a great opportunity to live in a time when there is so much intermingling of nationalities around the world. Most of us need to look no further than our own community to find people from another culture with whom we can share our lives and our faith. God is bringing the mission field to us. And Luke 24:47 says, With my authority take this message of repentance to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who turn to me. So I would take you just as a quick answer to uh, what it said about the beginning of Islam. Uh, you go to the book of Galatians, and there in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 6, it says... I marvel that you are turning away from, so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel, an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So, there you go. That's my thoughts on Islam. Yes? I would add uh, to that, um, when, when uh, Muhammad received the being, 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's believed that he was actually possessed, and he even questioned it, and so did his wife that thought well, that he was possessed. Yeah. And so he was so distraught for months, he wouldn't go anywhere, he wouldn't go out of the house. And so finally his wife took him to the head person of the town, and uh, he didn't want to be bothered with Muhammad, and right then is when he told Muhammad he wasn't possessed and he was okay. He was and okay. So he went on with it. Later he claimed because his wife knew Christianity, he claimed it was the angel gave Oh, okay. Well, huh. it certainly wasn't. So uh, I don't know if you heard what she said, but she gave a little talk on Islam and how uh, they believe that uh, was uh, Muhammad nuts. was nuts. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, what, whatever he was, it was a different gospel. That's all I can say. Okay, Sam is having terrible hip pain, going to the VA on the 16th for hopeful relief. We want to keep him in prayer. Another Sam is asking for prayer for his family and their doctrine, which is causing friction. Also, Kevin's health isn't great after some strokes, and he's asking for prayer for him. And another family friend had brain surgery and is not doing well, and she's very depressed, so he'd like prayers for her. And finally, Sam is asking for nice weather for his graduation on Saturday from high school. Nice young man, he emails from time to time, and he always has nice things to uh, say, and he's a, a student of the word, and he loves proper doctrine, so hats yeah. off to him. So uh, we prayed in advance for the uh, prayer request today, but just remember them, and. Uh, uh, when you go home, lift them up again. And then I have here, I've gotten at least 8,952 emails on the movie The Chosen, okay? Um, I uh, get them, and then I usually respond with something. And I decided instead of doing that, I have typed up my view on the movie The Chosen. So if you want that, your obligation to me is if you want to read what I think about the movie The Chosen, I'm not reading it because I don't care what other people think. And so if you want this, I will send it to you and just don't send me your response. I don't care if you agree with it. I don't care if you disagree with it. I'm giving a reason why I take the stand I do. Movie or so, series? Uh, Both? The series. Okay, you said movie. Oh, whatever. Anyway, the, the, the Chosen. Okay, so uh, if you want to know about that, I will send this to you, but just don't send me your reply because I'm not reading mine to you because you probably have your mind made up, but if you don't and you want something, that's fine. If you're in the church and you want to read this, that's fine too, but um, there you go. Um, that's how I feel about the movie The Chosen, just email or the series, whatever. Email me and uh, leave it at that. Okay. I just, it's one of those things that I think people take way out of context and they're too stressed over these things, okay? They hear things on YouTube, they hear things on Facebook that have been shown to be incorrect or taken out of their proper context and they do that and then they form their own little thing and uh, so uh, that's why I don't care about the opinion of people because most people have not studied this and secondly the background inform information doesn't matter to me you'll see why if you read that okay if you're interested there it is and uh, we'll leave it at that but please don't send me your opinion on it because I have formulated my opinion if you want that just email me I'll email you that and we'll be done um, it just it's one of those things you get 10,000 emails on a subject that doesn't interest you 
And there's a point where you have to say, I've just got to type something up because you have to respond to 10,000 emails and it just gets, it gets tiring after a while. And it's like I said, I'll say it one more time. It's not an issue that concerns me. It just doesn't. Okay. So if you want to know how I feel about that, that's great. If you don't, that, don't email me. I don't care either way. Uh, it's not that I don't care about your opinion on matters of life, but this is one of the things I just, it doesn't interest me. So, um, Pat and Cindy are here. They haven't been here for quite a while, and uh, uh, since COVID, they've been kind of isolating themselves, but it's very good to have you ladies here. So, okay, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you uh, turn there, we'll go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. Right, and, and back uh, it up to 13. That's good, because that's a paragraph there. A little segue into that, or? Uh, I don't know. No, not really. I, uh, 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 we're going to talk, well, yeah, I can say this. We're going to talk about the rapture for the next couple of verses. And uh, then when we get into 2 Thessalonians, we'll talk about the time, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we'll talk about the timeline of the rapture, because that's more defined in 2 Thessalonians. Um, there are obviously references to the rapture in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and you know a couple other places. The Old Testament has several pictures, prophecies, you know, prophetic pictures of the coming rapture. And we just went through one recently, which was uh, the uh, borders of the tribe of Zebulun. So if you have not seen the Joshua sermon on the borders of the tribe of Zebulun that we put out a month or two ago, you might want to check that out because it defines something going on with the rapture. Okay, and there are other Old Testament hints of this, which I consolidated into a single sermon one time. But um, the rapture is something that is going to happen. It's not one of those things that, oh, you know, uh, one of my friends emailed me a day ago and he said, you know, I, I find it suspect that nobody talked about a pre-tribulation rapture uh, for the uh, past 1900 years. And so I have kind of a trouble with that. And my immediate response was within two seconds, I just typed up a thing and I said that people had real trouble with the fact that Israel would be back in the land for 1900 years. Right. I mean, it, the dispensational model, which most people that understand the Bible, you know, properly now agree that's the correct interpretation of scripture. It didn't even really exist because people were under the impression that the Jewish people were out. Okay. They could not conceive of them being back in the nation. There's five Jews in Japan. There's, you know, some Jews up in Russia. There's some Jews over in, you know, North Africa. They will never get together again as a people. That will never happen. The Bible gives these promises in the Old Testament and they have to be fulfilled somehow. We know that's true because if this is the word of God, they're gonna be fulfilled and the Jews will never be a nation again. And so they came up with something called replacement theology. They took all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to Israel and they spiritualized them. The church has replaced Israel. And so that took care of the problem with them. And there's a reason why that happened. Why did that happen? It's because the Jews were under punishment for having rejected Jesus. It's right there in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So if they know what's going on and they uh, know that it's contingent on the Jewish nation to be back in the land of Israel, every Christian on the planet would be working for that 1900 years ago. And that was not a part of what was in God's plan because God has a plan and it's written out in the Old Testament. And so when people don't, when they say, well, the rapture is a new doctrine, 
it's something that John Darby uh, began in uh, the 1800s, okay? John Darby is basically the first person to really come out with that, although other people are talking about it. Um, but he's the first one whose writings came out. Um, and they say, well, that's why it's suspect, or I disagree, it's a new doctrine. I have two answers for them on that. The first is that John Calvin was only a couple hundred years earlier. So Calvinism is a new doctrine. It's not something that was there all along, was it? Right? Because I think he was in the 1600s and now it's the 1800s and it's John Darby. So you can't use that argument that because it came out in the 1800s, that's called a, um, a what is a type of fallacy known as a, um, uh, where you're dating something, where the date matters if it's older then it's better and uh, a chronological snobbery that's what it's called it's a, 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 a fallacy of chronology it doesn't matter if something is true and it came out in 1927 or if it came out in 1637 it doesn't make any difference as I said that's called chronological snobbery okay secondly to say that John Darby was the first one to come up with the idea of the rapture is wrong because Paul, Paul came here. up with the idea of the rapture and he came up and defended the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. It's very precisely defined in 2 Thessalonians 2. So um, with that, we can go ahead and get into here because we may get done with the rapture verses today. How are you ladies doing today? Good. Where are you coming from? Sarasota. From Sarasota? Well, how'd you hear about the church? Uh, I've known about you for years. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Well, welcome to you. Goulet's, uh, Ron and Karen yes, Goulet's. absolutely. We're, Wonderful people. We're, we're artists. And then also, um, up the street from me, uh, Fagan. Okay, yeah. Uh, Brian Fagan. I've known him for many, 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 many years. We've worked together at two companies, and uh, Brian's a great guy. He's, he's one of my little heroes. I say little because he's shorter than me, and that's not hard to do. Um, uh, yeah, or yeah, that is hard to do, I should yes. say. Anyway, okay, go ahead. We are okay. in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, verse 14. But I'm backing it up to 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe, this is 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Okay. Almost identical, a couple words different. For if we believe, he makes it a proposition, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Okay, um, I might as well say this. I've said this on a couple other uh, uh, varying topics than the rapture, but when you die, the most common thing to hear at a funeral, the most common, and it's not just isolated with believers. You'll hear this with people that never believed anything. What is the most common thing that you will hear people say at a funeral? They're up with the angels. Well, they're in heaven, okay? The angels, some say Jesus, some say whatever, but they're all in heaven. Everybody suddenly is in heaven, regardless of how they live their lives or what they believed. Okay, um, one of the things that we can absolutely certainly know that people are not in heaven as the Bible describes. Heaven, okay, is, can anybody tell me? Yeah, no judgment yet. They haven't gone through the Bema Seat Judgment. And until you go through the Bema Seat Judgment, you are corruptible. You are in a state of corruption. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you are in a state of corruption, then that means that your soul has not received its new body. You have not gone to the Bema Seat of Christ, and therefore you cannot be in heaven. Absent from the body, <clears throat> present with the Lord, 
does not have to mean that you're in heaven with Jesus, okay, at all. Just like it says Jesus is at the right hand of God and God does not have a right hand. He is spirit, okay, so that's a metaphorical thing. Um, when it says that we are absent from the body, dead, uh, present with the Lord, that means that the Lord has total control over us. Wherever we are, we are with the Lord. If, can anybody doubt if you're a believer right now that you are with the Lord? You are in Christ. The point that Paul is making, absent from the body, present with the Lord, means that you are in the control of the Lord. Okay, it doesn't mean you're sitting there with him at a table right now. So we have to get these things out of the way because if we don't get those out of the way, then the verses that we will read right now, like the one we just uh, uh, read, will not be correct. It says, Paul just said that they are where? Asleep. They are asleep. Okay, they are in, just like Samuel in 1 Samuel, uh, yeah, Prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28, he was doing what? He was in a state that we don't quite understand, but he was in Sheol, the pit. You know, some people translate it hell at times. Some people translate it the pit. Some people, there's all different ways that they translate it based on their presuppositions. Sheol is the place of the dead. That's what it means. Samuel was dead. He had to be raised up by the witch of Endor. And we know it was Samuel because it says his name several times. And then we also know it because she freaked out when she saw it. She gave a big yell, not expecting to actually do what she had done. The Lord allowed something that she had never experienced before. You can infer that, although it doesn't say that in the text. But he is in a place <clears throat> that the Lord has control over. Okay, he's a pre-Christ incarnation saint, we can call him. And they will rise at their due time. That's uh, Daniel chapter 12. All right, we know that. But um, when it says that they are the dead in Christ, they are asleep in Christ. You are physically dead because your body has stopped, you know, working, but you are in a state of sleep, okay? Whatever that means, I just take these things literally, and I know that you are not in heaven as we would think of heaven because of the uh, doctrine of in, being corruptible as opposed to being incorruptible, okay? So um, we'll start with the commentary now. The words for if, this is uh, Paul's words here, <clears throat> for if are stressed in the Greek. It would be something like if indeed, okay? In other words, this is not a question which asks if we can just believe, rather it is an emphatic statement containing no doubt as in, for we certainly believe. So he's making it a proposition, but he's not questioning something. He's saying, we certainly believe this fact, okay? It is an emphatic statement. This is what the gospel hinges on. Nobody that Paul is writing to, as one of the brethren, noted in the previous verse, we'll go back, you read it already, but I do not want you to be ignorant brethren. He's writing to believers. The term brethren indicates that these people are people that have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, um, he's writing to brethren, would be considered as such unless he believed this particular precept, which he now states, that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, as he says in Romans 10. Okay, and he also says it in 1 Corinthians 15, but we'll first go to Romans 10. And he says there, okay, whoops, I'm going back too far now. It's a little book in between Acts and 1 Corinthians, Charlie. Okay, uh, let's see here, Romans 10, and then it says, we'll just, we'll just take it, uh, we'll start with, um, I'll start with verse 6, just so you get some background on it. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. 
do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, that is the only thing that God asks you, uh, the condition of your salvation, is faith to believe. And the gospel is, once again, he repeats it in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Here he goes, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay, that's the gospel. Please don't add to it. Please do not take from it. That is the gospel. Christ died for your sins, implying that you are a sinner. Are a sinner. Okay, Christ died for your sins. If you can't acknowledge that Christ died for your sins, then you cannot be saved because you think I am a perfect person and I don't need a savior. Christ died for your sins. He paid the debt. The atonement is covered. Talk about the Goulets. Here they are. Welcome. Um, so we have... Um, Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Okay, if Christ died for your sins, he died uh, a vicarious death, which is noted several times throughout the Old Testament in pictures, such as cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So he died. He took your sins into the grave. Christ rose again. There's two points about that that uh, we need to believe. The first is that he in rising again, it proves that he had no sin of his own. Because if he had sin, the wages of sin is death. He'd still be in the grave. And because it says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, that means that he is God. He is God. So you are affirming that he is Jehovah. He is Lord. When it says Lord in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it's not talking about, okay, he's my master. It's speaking about he is the incarnate word. He is the Lord God, okay? And then secondly, the second thing that we can infer from that is that if he died with your sins and he took your sins upon himself and he rose again, that means that your sins remain forever in the grave, past, present, and future. It is done. You are no longer under law. You are under grace. You have accepted the premise that you're a sinner, that Christ died for your sins, and that you are saved. Uh, right there, eternal salvation. But these are the things that are necessary. Uh, I'll read you what I typed this morning. This is what I typed from Acts. I'm a little bit ahead now because last week I did a couple extra commentaries. I thought, you know, if I kick off, I want to be farther along so people have something to do until I'm buried. Anyway, um, let's see here. So uh, we're in I, Acts 17, and I... Uh, uh, verse 34, the last verse of Acts is what I typed today. And it says, um, first I'll read chapter uh, verse 33. So Paul departed from among them. That's incorrect. That translation is not correct. It says Paul left their midst. Okay. In other words, it says in, um, uh, and you'll get this in about 10 days or no, 15 days now. Anyway, uh, before he started speaking, they said, we want to hear it. You're saying something. Okay, so uh, then they took him up to the Areopagus. Now he is at the Areopagus. But in verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in their midst. 
He was already at the Areopagus, and then he stood into their midst, meaning he took the center stage, and he is now speaking out the gospel to these people. He's giving them the philosophy of Greek writers and all this kind of stuff, okay? And then uh, this translates here that he... Um, Paul departed from among them. He didn't. He's still among them. He's at the ear up because he's just no longer in their midst. Okay, so um, I had real fun typing that. I actually took, um, I read 46 different versions of that verse, and I took all of them that were different, and it came out to 27, I believe, were different than what the, uh, than any other, okay, which means there was a little overlap in some of them, okay, and I said, you know, this is important. This is important that we look to translations and try to figure out. I mean, you're talking about in the Greek, I think it was like five words, 27 different translations of those five words, okay? And I would say that 82% or more of them were not even close to being correct, okay? It's important that we follow these things. Anyway, um, verse 34, uh, 33, so Paul departed from among them, not right actually. However, some men joined him and believed. believed believed okay among them Dionysius the Areopagite a woman named Damaris and others with them they believed that's all that God asked you to do and you know what he gave if you go through there and I had to defend because people would could say well he didn't really give the gospel and I show where he did okay it is implicitly stated in his words enough where what they heard was sufficient for them to believe and to be saved okay so that is what God asks of you, is to believe the simple gospel. Not that you're good enough to make it to heaven, not that you have done something like giving money to a church or helping old ladies across the street or anything like that. Your works don't count. Jesus Christ did the working. All he asks us to do is to believe that. I have done enough so that you can be saved and you can be reconciled to me. And you are in this body and you are going to get old and you're going to die someday unless the Lord comes first. And our hope is what he's talking about right here. This is our great hope, is that we have a confidence that no other religion on this planet can provide because it's not about us. We don't have to say, okay, I've done this and maybe it's good enough, or I've earned my way to heaven by doing this and this and this. You'll never know if it's enough or not, or if you've done something to outweigh the good that you've done and suddenly you're on the bad side again. Jesus Christ is fully sufficient to save. Fully sufficient. And that's what we're talking about here is this great hope. So, um, to not believe in the death and resurrection of Christ is to not be a Christian. I don't care if you were born to Christian. You know, I grew up, mom and dad went to the Episcopal Church. Okay, Episcopal Church. I hope I said that right. Anyway, they went there. I went because they took me. She said I was a very good boy in church. Every Sunday I was the epitome of being a good boy. Okay, maybe not, but we went to church, and then when I went out into the world, people would say, well, what are you? And I would say I am a Christian because mom and dad are Christians. Christianity is not congenital. It does not transfer to the next generation. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.14 does give a provision for a certain group of people for a certain time. Okay, I will admit that. Uh, that we'll read it just so I, you don't think, oh, what's Charlie talking about? But Christianity is not congenital. You must be a believer. 
Okay, if you're not a believer, then you're not going to be saved. Okay, but 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Paul's talking about marriage here. He's talking about marriage. And so it kind of goes over your head and you think, well, uh, why would he even say that? But he gives you an answer. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them. Now, I'm starting in verse 8 to give you some background. Um, it is good for them to remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the marry, married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Here it is, verse 14. This is why this provision is given. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. That doesn't mean they're saved. It means there's a state of sanctity, and here's the reason. Otherwise, your children, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Can anything unclean enter the presence of God? Provision for that, okay? All right, and I'm not going to get in any depth. If you want to know that, go back and watch the 1 Corinthians 7 commentary, and or you can read it online. But there you go. We're speaking now about believers, people that are saved in Christ, okay? To not believe in the death and resurrection of Christ is to not be a Christian. Either one believes this and is saved, or he does not believe it and is not saved, Okay. Paul takes the two verbs, died and rose again, and places them side by side as a single action. In God's mind, what Christ did is a single action because he is Jesus and he had no sin. So it is inevitable that if Christ died, he would rise again. It is inevitable. The wages of sin is death. He came out of the grave. It could not be otherwise because he is the incarnate word of God. He is the God-man, okay? And as I said, the other thing which is explained in the book of Colossians is that your sins are buried with Christ. Because he came out of the grave, it means that your sins, past, present, and future, are gone. If you want to be assured and reassured of your position in Christ, just say, I am eternally saved. Because when you do something so stupid, that maybe you get locked up in jail, maybe you uh, spend the rest of your life chewing on your fingernails and worrying, does God still love me? You have believed the gospel and you are saved. What will happen is when you are resurrected in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, you will go to the Bema Seat of Christ and you will lose rewards for the thing you did, okay? But you, God will never, never betray his covenant with you. Unlike us who, breaks who break covenants all the time, look at Israel, okay? We do it all the time. Look at the failed marriages out there. Look at the times that we have not been faithful to our, our bosses or whatever. We make a covenant saying, I will work faithfully for this much money every week, and then we fail at that. But we made an implicit covenant with them, okay? We didn't walk through any divided animals, but we made a covenant that we would give of ourselves to receive from him and we failed that. Okay, this is what humans do, and we take our limited human 
thoughts about our existence and we shove them into what we believe about God. And we tell people, you can lose your salvation because, okay, that's incorrect. I'll read you a verse from Timothy just uh, to give you some assurance on that because I know Not people... One, one Corinthians... Uh, well, that's the Bema seat, and I could read that, uh, but I told them to go there. So um, what I want to read you here is this one, and I think it's in 2 Timothy. Um, it's right here. Okay, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And what he's speaking about there is our position in Christ. We have died with Christ. We are in Christ, okay? If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Okay. Now, the next one seems to sound like he could lose your salvation. If we deny him, he will also he also will deny us. He's not speaking about salvation. He's speaking about people that have never believed the gospel. If you believe the gospel, it says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then you haven't denied Jesus. So he's not speaking about that. Last of the verse, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You are in Christ. You are now a part of him. He cannot deny himself, and he will not because he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. This is what we're speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 right now. We are speaking about the God that does not make mistakes ever. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit when you believed, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you will lose your salvation and he removes his Holy Spirit, that means that he made a mistake. And that is not the God of the Bible. Okay, this is just a little bit for people that may be interested in this. There are 327 verses on any given day that somebody will send me saying, see, this proves you can lose your salvation. And every single one of them is out of its proper context. Every one of them. I just made that number up. And I just way want you lower know. than that number. Yeah, I made that number Damn. up. But anyway, people will use these verses and they are not properly handling scripture. Okay? God is covenant faithful even when we are not. And if you want proof of that, they're sitting in the land of Israel right now after 2,000 years of dispersion being faithfully unfaithful to him since the day that they came to him at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. No sooner did Moses go up the mountain and start receiving the law of what to do to build this, this tabernacle, which is an image of Jesus Christ, they build a golden calf. And since then, they have never been faithful to him, ever, just constantly turning away from him, one time after another, all the way through the Old Testament. And yet he has remained faithful to them. That is your surest evidence that we have tangible evidence that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, going back now. This is all important for you to understand what is going to happen when Jesus Christ comes for us, okay? Um, he says, um, Paul takes the two verbs, died and rose again, and places them side by side as a single action. He did this also in Romans, speaking of the two things as one unified whole. Let me take you there. Uh, these are great verses to remember for this particular doctrine, that the cross and the resurrection are uniquely tied together in God's mind as one event okay even though they're two separate things chronologically and in the stream of time they are one event 425 is where we're going um, Romans 4 chapter uh, Romans 4 verse 25 he says um, uh, I'll read 24 is this what I want yeah 24 I'll go back to 23 because it's a paragraph now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him 
but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He ties them together as a single act. He was, uh, read it again, he was uh, delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Okay, this is what God is doing with the giving of his son for the world and how it affects us, taking us all the way back to Genesis. We're in the garden. We're in the state of paradise. We blow it. And God says at that time in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do it through the giving of somebody. And they waited, and they waited, and he finally came, and he went to the cross to bring us back to that state. Okay, the focus here is on the humanity of Jesus. Though fully God, his humanity died, and it was up to God to raise him. Now, just so you know, it says in the New Testament, who raised Jesus? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. At three different times, it says God the Father raised him. It says, I, nobody takes my life. I lay it down willingly. I pick it up of my, I know I paraphrase that. That's Charlie Gare's paraphrase of my own accord. And then at another time, raised by the Spirit of Holiness. All three members of the Godhead. What? Romans 10, 13. Is that where you want to go? You're going to take me back there, aren't you? I was just in Romans 10, okay? We're going to go back there because Burke wants me to. Romans 10, 13. Um, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Um, no, Romans 10, 13 is forever who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyway, that's okay. You find it and we'll, we'll you just read it real loud when you find it. Okay, um, uh, so here we go. Um, uh, focus is on his humanity, okay? He died, and it was God who raised him up, having been satisfied with his work. If he wasn't satisfied with it, he would have remained in the grave. But he was in... Yes, go ahead. Read it loud. 8.11. 8.11. Go ahead. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he who raised Christ from the, from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. There you go. So, and it says it another way with the Spirit as well. I said it. I don't remember what I said, but it was on my mind at the time. So uh, that's another evidence of that. But all three members of the Godhead were working in the sequence of events which occurred in the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? In the Gospel of John, Jesus stated that he would lay down, oh, here it is, would lay down his own life and take it up again. But it is his divine nature which accomplished this. This is shown true because in Romans 10, 9, it says God has raised him. In his humanity, he literally died and he literally rose again from the grave. As this is so, and as we are in Christ because of belief in what he has done for us, then Paul next says, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Okay? God is going to bring with Christ those who sleep in Jesus. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. They are with Christ, but they're asleep. That's what it says. I take it at face value. Whatever that means, and I'm not one to get into all these, you know, some people say, well, soul sleep is a heresy. You know, all we know is that God has these people. 
they will be raised. And when they are raised, Christ, God will bring them with him. And we'll see the sequence of events in a minute. Okay. So, um, uh, there is, uh, where was I even? So, yeah, he will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In this, there is surety. This goes back to what Paul said a couple verses ago, where he said, um, where is this? Uh, I do not, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. They were like, what's going to happen? If they missed the, you know, Christ is going to come. We know he's coming, but they're already dead. What's going to happen? And so Paul is giving them this assurance. They're not just dead. They are with Jesus. He has control over them. He will not forget a single one of them. And as I said, I think it was last week, there's been 1,900 years plus now. We're in the 2,100, whatever, 2,000. So 2,023, what year is it? 23. Anyway, there's been a lot of years of people dying. That's a lot of people. And he has not forgotten one of them. He knows the numbers of hair on your head, and he knows every sparrow that falls from the sky. God knows everything. He's not going to overlook one of those precious souls that Christ went to the cross for. It's not going to happen. Okay, there is surety. There is no, we hope this will happen. Paul states it as a matter of fact. As Christ arose, so will those who sleep with him. They will rise. There is literally nothing to question because it is impossible for it not to occur. Why? Because Christ came out of the grave. He was without sin of his own, and he was without sin of you who believe in him. If your sin stuck to him, he would not have come out of the grave. He'd still be there. Because you are in Christ, it is impossible for you not to come out of the grave. It's impossible because the wages of sin is death, and your wages have been paid by Jesus. Everybody see the logic there? It's, it, it's perfect what God has done. It is You go through these Joshua sermons and you see the perfection of all of the things that God is showing us are going to happen in redemptive history again and again and again. Nothing is missed by God. It's, it's marvelous to see. Anyway, so... Uh, Explains how the good news works. Yeah, the good news. I mean, it's good news because it is good news. It's the best news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's nothing to question. It's impossible for not to occur. In the words of Paul, though... He doesn't actually say in Jesus, but rather dia. Dia means anybody? God. No, dia, not dios. That's that's Italian or uh, whatever, Latin. Dia, this is a circle. That's a diameter. There we go. Through, dia, through, okay? So um, he says through Jesus. The symbolism of what Paul is saying is missed by translating this, this word as in. And once again, you know, it, you got... Uh, some verses in the Bible, how many words are in this in the Greek? Um, I don't have it in front of me, but this is a, about 14 or 15 words long, so you can imagine the Greek is about the same. If they can blow five or so words you know, of something so simple as Paul got up and left their midst, you, you got to go through, don't read one translation, read one in the morning, read one at night. And when you finish that one, close it, put it on the shelf and go buy a different translation and read it. And never stop reading the Bible. Read the Bible until you're tired of reading the Bible and then continue reading the Bible. Okay, never stop. This is the word of God. You know, I was talking to somebody today about the word, maybe it was last night, and it was last night, I'm pretty sure. Okay, I speak, and if I'm honest, if I'm being 
honest in what I'm saying. Not, not making anything up, I'm not lying, but I'm speaking something that is heartfelt and true. My words are what at that point? They are an expression of who I am, of what I believe. I'm talking about if I am honest in myself. Now, God cannot be dishonest. God is perfectly truthful. Therefore, if God gave us this word, and we have every reason to believe it, if he gave us this word, and it is his spoken word through his prophets and apostles, then it is a what of himself. It's an expression of who he is. It's not God. People make the Bible into an idol all by itself sometimes. God is here. Okay, the expression of God is in this word. Jesus is the word, and he is God. Now it is being expressed in the word that is written. Okay, so there's a difference, but it is an expression of himself. If it is reliable, which it is, like I said, keep reading different versions, because man has been allowed to... to mess up. <laughs> we mess up everything. But uh, I will stop right there, and I brought this up a while ago. I think it was in a sermon on Sunday. But in the symbolism of the tabernacle, every single thing points to Christ. Okay, Bezalel who was given the job, and I just read that, I think, this morning or yesterday um, in one of my, the versions I'm reading. But um, Bezalel, his name is, uh, comes from Bethlehem, which is in, Tzel uh, 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 is shadow. So it's normally, uh, Bethlehem is different, Bethlehem. So it would be Be'in, Tzel is shadow, and then El is God, okay, Bethlehem. But if you go back to Genesis chapter one, maybe it's chapter three, I can't remember which, it uses the term that man was created Bethlehem, in the image of God, okay? In other words, Bethlehem was chosen because he is producing something that is the image of God. And that's explicitly said by Moses when he said, make, or God to Moses, make it exactly as you see the pattern, because this reflects heavenly things. And he told him, for example, how to make the veil. What is the veil? It says it explicitly in the book of Hebrews. His flesh. It is a picture of the flesh of Jesus Christ. When the veil was torn, Christ's body was torn. Every single part of that pointed to either something about Christ or something Christ is doing. So you've got the Ark of the Covenant. Everything about it is uh, Zahav Tahor, gold pure. Okay, you've got the, the shatim wood, the incorruptible wood, a picture of Jesus Christ's humanity. He is incorruptible, just as the wood is incorruptible. But then it's laid over with zahab tahor, gold pure. That's a picture of his deity. Here's this box that is picturing Jesus, and in it are put the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. He is the embodiment of the law of Moses. He embodies it. Okay, that's the picture we're being given. On the top is a uh, mercy seat of a talent of Zahav Tahor, pure gold. That is a picture of his, it's said explicitly in the New Testament, it's the place of propitiation using the same word as the Hilasterion as the Old Testament mercy seat. That is him, that is a picture of him. Okay, he is the place of propitiation. He is the place of mercy. Everything about this is pointing to him. It's got four corners, okay? Four corners, four is the number of what? We've gone through 8,000 times. Creation. 
it is the world number, the city number. So everywhere in creation is covered by what Christ is going to do, okay? And it's got four rings. And the four rings are, we saw that very clearly, the four gospels, okay? It's right there. It's, they are the connection between Christ and what he is going to present. And what does he present? He presents two of them. The uh, Old and New Testament. Old and New Testaments. These are, that is the connection. Christ is the connection between both of them. They're tied together. Everything is tied together. You've got now the Old and the New Testament, and they are covered with Zahav. Not Zahav Tahor. Why? Because they're not pure. Because they do not picture the incorruptible, absolutely pure nature of God. Because God has allowed man to translate his word. And when we do, we make mistakes. And so it is still Christ being presented, but God has allowed finite fallen man to translate his word. The one thing of the Ark of the Covenant that is not pure gold are the two testaments. Even though they are pure, when they were originally received without error, with their inerrant, they're uh, without any, uh, there's three or four words that I'm not thinking of right now, God has allowed us to translate them. So when I read this, this is the word of God, but it's been translated by man. And I can see right here in, oh, I, I'm not an Acts anymore, Acts 17.33, that there's an error in this translation. In the original, there was no error. Okay, but everything points to Christ. Okay, everything points to that. So here, we'll go back and we'll look at this again now. So, What's that? As you should notice, I did not fall asleep during that sermon. Oh yeah, absolutely. You were paying attention. It's an important sermon because it shows us truths that are coming in Christ and what Christ is going to do. Okay. Um, uh, now there are people could say, well, why don't we have the original word without any error? There are a lot of good reasons for that. I could think of probably three right now, but I'll, I'll give you a couple. One of them is if somebody had control of the word of God, they had the only ap absolute word of God, what would happen with that? they would control you. They would manipulate you. It, absolute power corrupts absolutely, okay? That's one of them. Um, also, uh, I, I just had another reason it went right out of my brain, but there are several reasons I think I gave them during that sermon why it is actually good. God has preserved his word in numerous manuscripts, okay? It is in there, and we can say, well, we know this one isn't right because that's got an X there, and that one's got an X there, and then we just remove the X and we know exactly what the original said. Okay, we know these things. Bible scholars have been doing this. They've been, uh, it's called um, uh, critical, uh, I, I'm not thinking today. I'm obviously tired. But anyway, um, uh, it's higher criticism, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Anyway, these people have gone through the word and they know where all of the errors are in this manuscript or this manuscript or this manuscript. But let me tell you what, if the Catholic Church had control over the original Word of God, we would be in a really severe place right now, okay? Just think it through. There Mary are good reasons. Us. What's that? Mary help us. Oh yeah, Mary help us. That's right. You know, there, there are all kinds of good reasons why the Lord has done what he has done. And it's all pictured in the Old Testament symbolism of the ark and all of the other things of the tabernacle. Everything points to Jesus. Okay. Um, uh, even so, God will bring with uh, uh, Jesus, and then I went through the word dia, through. The symbolism of what Paul is saying is missed by translating this word as in. Jesus is the way. He is the door. 
He is the one who welcomes us through himself. Everybody see why Dia is a, a proper thought? We go through Christ to meet with God through himself. When our physical bodies die, we pass through Christ Jesus into a state of rest. As believers, we are in Jesus. And so the actions which occur in this manner are through him, dia, okay? It is one of the infinite blessings we possess because of simple faith in what he has done for us. Further, the verb for sleep in this verse is passive. Therefore, instead of who sleep, it should read who have fallen asleep or who have been laid asleep. Uh, Burke, before we started today, was talking about our appointed time. There's a time appointed for every person to die. I was The reason why he said that is because I said I was driving to Home Depot today, which is way out of my way. I like to go to Lowe's, but somebody said there was something at Home Depot that worked better and it was cheaper. And so I thought, well, I'm spending company money, you know, for the people out at the mall. And so I'll go out there and I'll get something that's cheaper and better. And all I did was waste my time because they don't sell that product anymore. Okay, so I could have gone down to Lowe's and whatever, but it doesn't matter. Um, I'm driving down the road and there's two roads left in Sarasota probably. I don't know if there are any others, but they've got these giant ditches on the side. I mean, they're, these are major giant ditches, okay? If you go in, your car is going to be ruined, all right? What's that? Proctor. Proctor and Macintosh um, uh, uh, going back uh, I went down Macintosh because I haven't been down there since, you know, the kids were in school. Anyway, uh, so I decided to go there and these, these big V's are there still. And I was thinking, you know, if somebody just avoided a, a squirrel and they swerved into my lane, that'd be the end of Charlie Garrett, right? I mean, hopefully. But then Burke was, and Mabel too, she's kind of scolding me for, you know, we don't want to hear about that. Now, well, you know, life happens and so does death. We don't know what our appointed time is, and we got to be ready for it, okay? So, I, it just was going through my mind as I was driving. I mean, maybe today is the day, but it's not because I'm still here. We don't know. Anyway, um, so um, uh, the, uh, the passive should be, instead of who sleep, it should read, who have fallen asleep, God appointed it, Charlie Garrett fell asleep, okay? Or who have been laid in sleep, okay, whatever. It's a passive verb. God has directed the moments of their lives and at some point their lives ended that's a fact and if the lord doesn't come for another hundred years i hate to tell you folks not one of us is going to be here that's all there is to it all right uh, their lives have ended and ours will end someday some of us might not make it to church on sunday we don't know okay symbolized by the word sleep likewise at some point god will again direct the movement of what occurs for them bringing them to a new state. We are participants in what occurs, not the initiators of it. He is doing these things. We're not. All we are doing is living out the lives that he granted us, okay? Hopefully we call on Jesus and are saved. If we're not, then a different fate awaits us, okay? But if we believe that Jesus died for our sins, he's going to come and get us. He will initiate the day of your death, the day you go to sleep, and he will initiate your calling. You have nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how long you lay in that grave. If you died in 322 AD, you have to wait. And Christ will initiate the process. Okay? We're just participants in what occurs. 
That's all there is to it. As an exciting second possibility, Vincent's Word Studies renders this verse as, them also that are fallen asleep will God through Jesus bring with him. In this, Jesus is represented as the agent of the resurrection. In either translation, we are the participants and God is the one to do the work. We sleep, he raises, okay? It's going to happen. If you believe the gospel, don't fret that you're going to die. Oh, you know, it's gonna happen, okay? But it is really gonna happen, he is gonna raise us again. It's inevitable. God will not forsake what he has covenanted with you. And when he sent his son to the cross, what did Jesus say the night before? Not my will, but yours. Well, not just that. I'm talking like, at the dinner. This is my blood of the new covenant. The covenant is in Christ. God is the initiator of this. He is the one that set forth these things in motion. If you accept the proposition, then you are in Christ. Another logical reason for eternal salvation, okay? He has covenanted in his son. The blood is shed. You are justified. It is a done deal. You are in Christ, and God will raise you. If you believe the new covenant, you should believe that you will be raised, okay? If you don't, you know, you're the one that has to go through life miserable, and there's a great Methodist church right down the road that you can go to. They'll tell you that, okay? They will remind you that you can lose your salvation and that you need to keep coming to church, keep giving 10% every week and all of that nonsense, okay? You don't need to worry about that, okay? God will raise you. It is going to happen, okay? Um, we went through the, uh, I'll do it again sometime, I'm sure, when we get to maybe Timothy or something, but we'll go through the doctrines of you know, you've got, um, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm trying to think of what they're called. Uh, Pre-lapsinarianism, post-lapsinarianism. Uh, you've got uh, sub-lapsinarianism, and then you've got Wesleyanism, okay? You've got those four major, there's lots of other ones. But, uh, and that sounds like big words, it's not. Just think of pre as before, lapse is the fall, Arianism is the doctrine, pre-lapsinarianism, okay? And then from there you can think about what is being told, okay? And your view on what those various things are means that you don't have to do anything because God has already saved you before he created anything, Calvinism, okay? And you're the elect, you don't have to do anything, and there's no reason for you to tell anybody else because God's already determined exactly who is going to be saved before he ever entered into the notion of the fall, okay? Or you can go to Wesleyanism that says that you're saved, but you know, once you're saved, you're kind of in this muddy uh, stuff on the side of the river. And if God doesn't <laughs> like you anymore, then he shoves you back out, okay? And, and so there you are. Wait, what about me, okay? It doesn't work that way. God has covenanted in his son. He has made the promise and he has given you the spirit as a guarantee, okay? Uh, all of these things. It's important stuff okay it's a great time to keep reviewing these things um let's see here uh vincent's word studies depending on how paul's words are formed they tell us that the sleep is either through christ or the resurrection is through christ in the end it is all about what jesus has done for us all of it and what god will do through jesus for us we have a surety that those who have died before us are safe and secure in the hands of our most capable God. 
He is not going to fail you, okay? So don't bite your fingernails and don't worry about the dumb thing you've done. Listen, you want to see somebody that does a lot of dumb things? Just follow me for 24 hours and you'll say, I'm, I'm okay. If Charlie's okay, I'm okay. You'll, I guarantee you'll think that, all right? I, I am Mr. Put My Foot in My Mouth all the time. Uh, I'm the one that does every wrong thing on this planet. But I did a good job painting the handrails at the mall this morning. I got to admit, they're all done. Every year I have to do that. And uh, I got the last of the four sets of them done this morning. I still got some black paint on me, I bet. No, I don't. Okay, anyway, um, so I didn't do a bad job of that, but I blew everything else today. All right, so don't worry about it. God has you covered. Okay, life application. If you have believed in the work of Jesus Christ, you are saved. Nothing is going to change that. Someday, unless the Lord comes first, your earthly life will end, just as has happened to the countless believers in Christ thus far. But that is not the end of this story. It is simply the closing act, closing of one act. God has set the plan and it will not be thwarted. We shall be raised to eternal life because of the work of Christ Jesus. As I love to say, he didn't send his son to the cross to provide you with eternal insecurity. That's not what he did, okay? He sent his son to the cross so that you can be saved. Verse 415. Before I do that, yes. how sometimes explanations of this very thing has been carved into headstones and, oh. and everything. Rest in peace. Yeah. I mean, Hello. doesn't that just yeah. kind of spell it out? Rest in right peace, R.I.P. That means, you know, even the word cemetery comes from the idea of of our, yeah, being with Christ. It's a place of sleeping, okay? So uh, it, it, the Christian idea of what's going on is ingrained in our society. I know the left is trying to drum it out constantly, but mm -hmm. it is ingrained in our society, okay? But don't say field. Okay, no field. Remember okay. the prophecy update? Yes, yes, yes. I, I, yeah, no field. Okay, uh, strawberry something forever. Yeah, I, I, they are trying to erase everything in our society. I what, what is that all about? Don't even tell it me just, now. Tell me later. Who knows? Like so yeah, well, there you go. I don't. You answered the question there right there. Okay, 415. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen Asleep. asleep. Okay, this one's a little different, but it says exactly the same thing. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Okay, so, 4.15. For this we say to you, Paul's words, that is given to build upon the words of verses 13 and 14, which we just went through. Paul has made statements that pertain to those who have died and to the future concerning them as well, okay? That is for certain. Those in Thessalonica could say, what is he talking about? How could he know these things? He's just saying this to give us comfort in our sorrow, but it can't be true. This is certainly a possibility. And so the words, for we say this to you, will then be built upon with, by the word of the Lord. Anybody can say anything at a funeral. Anybody can say anything in a sermon. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference at all if it is not something that is confirmed by the word of the Lord. It doesn't make any difference at all. You know, when you're evangelizing people, they always say, well, I think. Are you going to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, I think I've been a good guy. It doesn't matter what you think. That is irrelevant. 
It makes no difference what you think or what you think or what I think or anybody else. The only thing that matters in regard to your salvation is what God has said. That's it. There's nothing else that matters. It doesn't matter what you think. And I try to be kind to people when I say that, but the fact is it does not matter. You have to be firm with people about the gospel. You have to tell them there is a problem and you need to have it resolved. Okay. Sometimes handing out tracts makes it a lot easier. There's no confrontation, and if they don't want to read it, they just throw it away. Whatever. But, you know, it, we should be telling everybody, everybody about this, because they are in this boat. It's either they're going to be raised or they're not going to be raised. And if they're not raised, that means they've got to wait for the great white throne, and they do not want to be raised there. Okay? All right. So, um, those in Thessalonians, oh, I read that. It's a possibility. Um, by the word of the Lord. That's where I ended. Paul claims direct inspiration from the Lord in this. That's it. Direct inspiration. There is nothing else in Scripture that matches what he says here. In other words, it cannot be said that he's simply repeating a previous verse or thing that is found elsewhere in Scripture. Nor is this something that was passed on to him through a third party. Instead, he is explicitly stating that he was instructed by the Lord. It is the word of the Lord bearing the full authority of the Lord, and it is now being transmitted to the believers at Thessalonica. And thus, to us. That's right, because it is in the word of God. He said it to the people at Thessalonica, and it is as relevant to you and me as it was to them. By the word of the Lord. Understanding this, he continues with this word of the Lord, Paul's words, saying that we, again, Paul's words, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Okay, that means that if the Lord was to come right now, it would be pertaining to everybody here. Got that? Read it again. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. And as I said a few minutes ago, if it happens in a hundred years from, from now, that will not pertain to us. We'll all be dead. Okay? Sleeping. Sleeping, but yeah, but we, we will not be here. We'll be waiting on what he's talking about. But for those that are alive at that time, whenever he comes, there is a time when the Lord will return. That is as sure as anything to be found in Scripture. Okay, as a matter of fact, I would place the return, return, not the resurrection. I would place the return of Jesus Christ as one of the principal doctrines of heresy. If you do not believe in the return of Jesus Christ, you are a heretic. The resurrection is a point of it. The Trinity is a point of it. The deity of Jesus Christ is a point of it. The virgin birth is a point of it. Okay, the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ is a point of heresy. All of those, if you do not teach those properly or if you do not believe them, you are a heretic. Okay, the return of Jesus Christ is put on the same level. Why? Because we take that every single Sunday and we say, we're taking this to remember the death of the Lord until, you come. until he comes. That is why we do that. Why would we be doing this? Why would we be celebrating the death of the Lord if he's not coming again? Okay, the entire point of the church is blown without that. Okay, it just as it would be without the all-sufficient atonement of his work. It'd be blown. It would be blown if he was not born of a virgin. Think these issues through. They're important doctrines, and the return of Jesus Christ is one of them. Okay? 
Uh, there is a time when the Lord will return. That is as sure as anything that is to be found in Scripture. The exact time is left unstated. And the way which he will return has to be fleshed out of several passages of Scripture, including Paul's words here. He's certainly returning again. We know that. But he isn't just coming back to an empty world or a world devoid of believers. Rather, there will be believers on earth that are waiting for him. We know these things because Paul has said that, and you can infer that if we're waiting for the return of the Lord and there are certain people that will be alive when he returns, that means there will be believers on the planet when he comes. We, it's just a one plus one proposition, okay? This is what it means when he says that we who are alive and remain. He's not talking about himself. He's just talking about any believer, we who are alive and remain. Understanding this, Paul's words, which include the word we, Oh, here you go. In no way implies that Paul expected this to occur within his own life. Okay, kind of got ahead of myself there. It was probably a hope of his, but the words must be taken generally. For all he knew, he could die that day. He could have died right at, you know, he's talking to these guys, and uh, uh, who knows, he walks out the street and uh, a donkey runs him over or something. I don't know, he, he had no idea. So when he says we, it has to be taken as a general proposition. The timing of one's life is up to the Lord. It's not up to Paul, it's not up to Charlie Garrett, it's not up to you or me. And no, suicide does not take care of that problem because people love to equate, well, if I committed suicide, then I took care of my own demise. No, the Lord knew that you would do something so ridiculous, okay? And if you're a saved believer, that does not end your salvation. You remain in the Lord, okay? So you can't beat God on these things. He already knows everything we're going to do in our life. He knows everything that will happen in the life of our brother or our mother or anybody else. He's fully aware of it, okay? So you can't outdo God. You know, that's the same thing as salvation. Well, you can't have any uh, part in your salvation because if you did, blah, blah, blah. Calvinism will use that. How many times does it say believe? How many times does it say whosoever? Okay? It doesn't say you're going to be regenerated in order to believe, and then you're going to believe, and then you're going to be saved. Okay? Faulty. Anyway, um, sorry, I hate to get off you of this tangent. In the Bible, but there's no instruction as to how to get saved again. Yeah, how, there's nothing about how to get saved again. There, that's exactly right. Okay, and there's also nothing in the Bible that says that this guy is a Jehovah's Witness, and he believes... And then he realizes he's wrong, and he goes in and he believes the correct gospel, and he is saved. There's nothing about that, okay? Calvinism is a failed doctrine because they don't think issues through like that or like what you said. Anyway, um, shouldn't get off on those tangents, but no. I do. Um, anyway, uh, the exact time is left unstated, okay? Understanding this, Paul's words, which include, oh yeah, I said that as well, okay? Um, and so Paul is speaking as a broad picture of the coming of the Lord for whatever Christians were alive at that time. Whenever it happens, whenever the Lord comes, this is who he's speaking about, okay? Not specifically a time that he himself would participate in. Further, the words who are alive and remain indicates that the timing is an unknown thing. I, somebody emailed me last week. I told him that people that are uh, predicting the rapture and then are wrong are harming the faith. They're destroying it. And he came back and he said, I disagree. They're doing a great thing and they're getting out the gospel. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were wrong. Okay? You believe whatever you want, but if you are predicting the rapture and then you're wrong, you are harming people. You are harming people's 
faith, you are harming people's uh, existence and possibly, quite possibly, harming their salvation because they say these Christians are a bunch of idiots that keep predicting something that's never going to happen. Okay, People like that should not be listened to, ever. We are never going to know the timing of the rapture. I don't care what calculation you do. I don't care what you think you heard in the back of your head from God. It is wrong. All right, It is explicit in Acts 1, 6, and 7 that we are not going to know the times and the seasons. And that means we are not going to know the times and the seasons. Okay, Paul repeats that in 2 Thessalonians. All right, so if you want to go pre predicting the rapture, you ought to just keep it to yourself because you are harming people. And you're, and you're also, you're disobeying the Lord because he's already said it. And plus, right here, logically, you can know that the timing is up to the Lord. He's it remains us, unknown. What's that? He's given us so much to do. Why would you waste your time? Why are that? you waiting? And that's the whole point of writing two Thessalonians. Is the people are sitting around, or one Thessalonian is sitting around, and they're not working. Okay? He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. You don't eat. <laughs> and he's talking about people that are doing exactly that. They're out there predicting the rapture all day. They're doing nothing productive for the Lord. They're wasting people's times. They're wasting their own lives. They never get into sound theology. They just go... So hop skipping around from one crazy prophecy teacher to another without ever learning proper doctrine and that is not a way to handle your existence in the presence of the Lord and every time that you predict the rapture or you get all hopeful about it I guarantee you that you are losing rewards for that because you're being disobedient to the word anyway um, from there he goes on to explain that those who are alive when he comes will by no means precede those who are asleep the words here have a strong emphasis on the negative. The Greek reads, Remaining unto the coming of the Lord, no not shall precede those who have fallen asleep. The emphasis shows two things to the anxious Thessalonians. First, those who have died will be quickened first. There's no reason for the confusion someone introduced into their minds that they would not be participators in this first resurrection. They will be raised and they will be so first. Okay, people are saying, well, they missed the resurrection. They got to wait for the great white throne judgment and, you know, I hope they make it. That's not the case. They will be raised first. Secondly, there was to be no fear for those who were facing death that they would be included in the first category and somehow miss the blessed return of Jesus. In fact, just the opposite is true. Those who have died in Christ would receive the honor of being quickened first. Now I say eight that, what? They eight feet more to go. Eight feet more to go. Yeah, they got eight <laughs> feet more to go. That's true. Or, you know, it depends. I mean, they may have died on uh, uh, the top of the Himalayan mountain. Yeah. What is it, the big Everest? You know, there, there are a lot of frozen people up there, okay? Right. They can't bring them down, and so they don't have very far to go. But um, all like, but they do have, uh, you know, they've got to be thawed out. Uh, actually, it's not true because that's a corruptible body. I'm just making a joke there. Anyway, um, I've always said that if, if being raised first means that you actually are aware of it and see Jesus, even if it's a hundredth of a millisecond, before the living people, it would be worth eternity. Imagine that, being the first to see Jesus, knowing that the promise is fulfilled. 
What an honor. Who cares about death? I don't care. You know, I, I don't want to have a crunchy one, but I don't care about being here. All right, life application. We may mourn over the loss of a loved one who is in Christ, but we can also rejoice that they will have the honor of being raised to new life before we who are left alive at his coming. Isn't an extra moment of seeing the Lord? Here it is. Seeing the Lord's face worth more than all the riches we possess. Certainly it is so. We should rejoice for their gain even in our loss. Oh, what a wonderful Lord. Uh, you know what? We've got... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a long one. Um, <laughs> let's see. Where are we? 59, 16, 16 17. You know, I'm going to have to rush through it. Shall I? No, I don't want to because I'm going to rush through it and we're going to miss some wonderful stuff. So uh, what, what can we do for 10 minutes? Um, let's eight minutes, whatever. I'm not going to start that because there's just no way that we'll, we'll miss something that is exciting and wonderful. And uh, uh, let's see here. Um, I know what we can talk about. They won't be here. They'll be here this Sunday, but not the next Sunday. Okay. Will you be here next Thursday? Okay. Next. Well, yeah, the Lord willing, of course. I mean, we don't know, but um, uh, hopefully the Lord willing. Okay. So Mabel and doctor have just a, another Sunday with us and then they're going to bail out and they're going to go to where it's nice and cool while we're suffering in the but I love it I love the heat I love the the tropical I love the green I love everything about Florida um you know what I went away for uh, uh almost 10 full years and uh I I was so happy to be back in Florida what a beautiful place what's that well, I went to Japan for six years, almost to the day. And that, actually, first I went to, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, not Austin, uh, Lackland. San Antonio. San Antonio. I went to San Antonio for eight weeks, and I didn't like that. And then I went to Biloxi, Mississippi, Keesler Air Force Base, for six weeks. And then after that, I went straight over to Japan for six years, and then I went to Malaysia for three more. And... <laughs> I loved all of it, but I was saying to some people last night that I felt older in Japan at 19 than I do right now because it was gray in the winter. The, all the leaves fall off the trees and you got these, it, everything looks dead. It, it's like being in a, a, a film noir, is that how you say it, N-O-I-R, where everything is just kind of it's horrible. You know, I, I love the people. I love being there. You know, if it the skies got blue, you felt great for 13 minutes and then it would get gray again. But... Um, it was very nice, but I, I love everything about Florida. I just love it. It's, it rains here. It's green. We got fruit. You just go down the road, and I'm trying to make it sound, you know, better than it is. But um, Fire ants. Fire, we do have fire ants sometimes. They have really diminished over yeah, the past years. But um, uh, I, I was saying last night to these folks that when I was a kid, um, when dad moved here in 1948, grandpa and grandma and dad, he was 15 when he moved here. And the um, island, everybody wants to be on Siesta Key now. Everybody. I mean, if you win the lottery, you'll buy a house on Siesta Key because that's where everybody wants to go. When grandpa moved out there, nobody wanted to live there. They wanted to live downtown because it was cleared and the mosquitoes were not as bad. Nobody. Mom knows how bad it was. It was horrifying. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, it was beautiful. But uh, then when I was about this big, they started spraying DDT, okay? And so what they would do is it was this fog that would follow the truck, and they'd drive down the road, and you'd hear them coming. We'd all go out to see this guy because there's nobody on the island. It's just, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So what they would do is they would go down all the way to Turtle Beach, and then they'd come back, and there were only like 20 houses out there. So they'd back into every single driveway, and he'd sit and he'd fog until the entire property was completely covered, and then he'd pull out and go to the next one. And when he left us, we ran down the road after him. So we're in the fog, and it was it's like now. If you want to know why there's a little defect here, it's probably because it's true. Of course, it's true. Mom is sitting here; she knows. But they, they, the DDT took care of a real problem because it was unlivable. It was almost unlivable out there, but it was so nice because there was nobody out there. A couple old people here go down the road, a couple old people, but you know, it was it was like paradise. We had, remember the frogs after every rain, if you went down Midnight Pass Road, the, it was so sad. Thousands, millions of frogs would come out every rain. And when you drove, Bump, they, they hit the bottom of your car when they're jumping because they're excited and you couldn't help it. You, you had to go. Billions of frogs. And I haven't seen a frog in 15 years out there. Okay. Uh, there were Bob White quail. They'd walk, you know, mom and then the little babies would walk everywhere. You haven't seen those in years. Uh, you know, we had uh, snakes. We had all kind, every kind of snake on the planet. We had um, lots of bobcats. Uh, yeah, uh, bo yeah, bobcats. And then there were, before... Uh, I think the last one died when I was a kid was the Florida Panthers were out on the key as well. Wow. Okay, last one died. I was real young. I remember we were going to St. Boniface and they said a Florida Panther got killed last night. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what that meant at the time. But it was very nice. So that's a little history just to get us through the last couple minutes. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are to you for the promise of Jesus Christ. We're so grateful to you. Thank you for what we have coming the hope that is not just a, a vain hope, it's a sure hope. It's something that we possess because we possess Christ in all his fullness because of faith. And thank you that you made it so simple. Thank you that it's guaranteed so that we know that even when we fail you, you will not, you will not break your side of the covenant. Lord, we love you. We praise you. How good you are to us. We pray for those prayer requests that were at the beginning of the uh, class. And we also pray for the safety of Sergio and Rhoda as they get on the airplane and uh, hopefully come to us safe and sound. And Lord, uh, we're just very grateful to you. Hallelujah to you for everything you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right, we'll say goodbye to the folks right now and then we'll give them a wave. No, thank you. All right, here we go. Back. Oh, it's a great hope we have. Okay, great hope.